0: friends, Greg Kochel here at Stand to Reason, and uh, I'm glad you joined us today because we have an important discussion coming up. You know, you might recall me uh, mentioning, and I've done this a number of times, some on air and some before audiences, uh, just that my concern now and the focus of my, in a sense, my professional efforts, um, is my chief concern has not been with reaching non believers. Obviously, what we do at Stand to Reason is uh, train people to think more carefully about their convictions and to defend those classical convictions about Christianity in, in the face of opposition, to do it graciously, to do it effectively. And uh, so that obviously is, has an evangelistic application. But my concern now is much more for the church in a different fashion, and that is um, protecting the church from the world without and from the wolves within, all right? And there are lots of wolves, and I've said this before. And that's actually the focus of our conversation today. It's the reason that I've asked my friend, uh, Jason Jimenez, to join us today. His most recent book, I think it's most recent, it just came out about a month ago, the the day my book came out, Street Smarts. It's called Hijacking Jesus, How Progressive Christians Are Remaking Him and Taking Over His Church um jason welcome to the show greg thanks for having me i appreciate it brother we miss you we had you with us, sir, six sessions for reality, the 22-23 season, and uh, that was great hanging with you and spending time and and benefiting from your contribution, and uh, I'm glad we're able to chat a little bit here on the air because we don't get to mix it up too often just because... Yeah, we're, I'm East Coast
1: and you're West Coast, yeah. but yeah, what a blessing. The, the reality conferences, if your listeners have never been, they are by far, and I've done this for a long time, almost 25 years... Mm. And you guys have an exceptional team, Greg, Mm -hmm. and they're like brothers and sisters to me. And what a fantastic time, just bonding, but defending the faith and equipping, like you said, the church, because they desperately need it. Most Christians Mm -hmm. today, sadly, are biblically literate, Mm -hmm. but they're dying for truth. And you guys definitely provide that.
0: Yeah, well, thanks, Jason. Uh, In your book, Uh, Hijacking Jesus... Uh, does the same. I uh, want to talk about the uh, progressive church or progressive Christianity and progressive Christians, and the way you put it here in your subtitle is um, how they are remaking him, Jesus, and taking over Jesus' church. I mean, how—I uh, how, how, guess I want to know how big is the influence of progressive Christianity? We'll get to definitions in just a moment, but how, how big is the influence, do you think, in, uh, in Christianity at large here in America?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think Greg, when I started working with millennials in the late nineties, you started to have these, the term progressive Christian wasn't used like it is obviously as frequently and often, but it was there. I mean, the ideology, the influence was there. And, and, and over time, as you started work with Gen Zers and these terminologies started to get flushed out more, not just from the academic sphere, I started to realize when you're interviewing people that would quote unquote, say they're Christian that they had a different meaning altogether. Mm -hmm. And one of the specific things and at the core of it is, well, who is Jesus Christ Mm. to you? Mm -hmm. So you asked the question, how large, uh, like how much is this spread into like American culture, into Mm -hmm. the churches today? Let me just tell you, when I did this research of hijacking Jesus for the last three years and wrote it for the last year Mm -hmm. with Salem books, we're talking about the majority view now that believe Jesus is not God in America. So they, if they say they're Christian and they believe that Jesus is a way, hmm. that he was a mystical teacher, or he was a woke teacher, or he was this insurrectionist, hmm. those false images of Jesus are by far the majority wow. view of Jesus in America today. Wow. So we as Christians, as biblical Christians who believe Jesus Christ is God, fully God and fully man, that is the minority view in America today. So that's how this is wow. really taken off. So that's why I said they're remaking him and also taking over the church in the process. Right.
0: Well, I, I actually I knew there's a problem. And uh, we've been talking about this for a number of years. Um, we had a whole our whole season, I guess, uh, last season of reality had to do with uh, deconversion and uh, de, uh well, de de deconstruction, deconstruction leading to deconversion, right? And there's a whole bunch of people that identify themselves as Christians in the progressive sense, and uh, that have deconstructed and de converted, at least from the Christianity that um, has been historic Christianity, classical Christianity, uh, and classical Christian values, and so they embrace all kinds of different things. So let's maybe let's narrow it down a little bit and talk about what exactly is progressive Christianity, and in general, we'll get to some specifics here and we'll kind of flesh this all out uh, as we move forward in our conversation together, Jason, but in general, how how is— Is progressive Christianity different from classical Christianity? And why is it important that we know the difference?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's one for clarity's sake, because oftentimes people just use the term Christian or they use the word progressive. Oftentimes in our culture, they believe it to be like, oh, a 2.0 version. Like there's new discoveries of Jesus that we have. Mm -hmm. Or as I talk about in the book, progressive Christians is this fresh perspective. So let's dive a little bit deeper At the heart of it, a progressive Christian is somebody who fundamentally denies that Jesus Christ is God, that he was virgin-born, that he lived a sinless life, and that he atoned for the sins of the world. So the umbrella, the ideology, the movement itself, progressive Christianity, denies those fundamental truths of Jesus. Hmm. They deny that he was physically – that he physically and literally rose from the dead, and they deny that he will literally return again. Now, not all progressive Christians deny those fundamental truths, but at the heart of a progressive Christian is that the Bible is not the infallible word of God. They hold to what is known as a kerygma view, meaning they're exoteric teachings of Jesus. And so they mix it with the Nag Hammadi Gospels, right? Mm -hmm. The Gospel of Thomas, for example. Mm -hmm. And so they think that those should have been inserted. And they actually believe progressive Christians, the vast majority of them, Greg, believe that Paul the Apostle was actually the first hijacker, mm. That he stole Christianity from the half-brother of Jesus, that is James, and it was over time in his epistles, all the way to the Council of Nicaea, where they deified Jesus, and so progressive Christians think that Gnosticism, um, Eutychianism, those type of early movements that were countering against the Gospels, they believe that was the real truth of Jesus, so, not what has now become what we call classical or biblical Christianity.
0: What's strange about that, and I, I'm glad that you emphasize this, and I, it seems to me that the, the central, maybe core, foundational, epistemic uh, point that progressives have is that the Bible's not God's Word. Because once you say that, then, you know, all kinds of mischief— can happen, and that 's what we see it 's almost to me like what progressives have done they 're more united on what they reject than on what they acknowledge and so sometimes when you talk about progressives or to them they 'll say well i don 't believe what that guy believes or this guy believes or whatever, uh, but the fact is what they don 't believe seems to be fairly unified, and you 've identified some of those things, even though they 're not a hundred percent. Certainly this idea that the bible 's not god 's word is Foundational what mystifies me though is those that, uh, other works, the Nag Hammadi texts, for example, from which we get the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, no one dates those things any earlier than the second century and some later, right. okay right nobody does so even even by by in a certain sense the critical scholar's assessment, Thomas, is not a primitive characterization of the life of Christ. Primitive in the sense to be very ancient. It's not foundational. It's later. okay. So why why would they be giving so much um, uh, credibility to those Gnostic texts uh, as representative of Christ's true belief rather than those ones that we have pretty good arguments we can place much earlier, than the Gnostic texts. And by the way, uh, with that, why is it that we have church fathers that are arguing against Gnosticism there in the early and mid and late second century? We have whole uh, volumes of works done by the church fathers to argue against it. These who were disciples, in some cases, like Papias, uh, uh, disciples, uh, uh, not Papias, I'm thinking of uh, Polycarp, Polycarp, of John himself. So we got a very tight sequence of discipleship going, and they're saying the opposite. So uh, uh, help me out here.
1: Well, I mean, to your point, Greg, that's that's what people have to understand. So when when I started to investigate this stuff and realized, it's kind of sometimes when you dive into atheism, like that's the best you have to disprove that god exists yeah. right sometimes you're kind of like scratching your head thinking really right um when it comes to the what what is and so that's why i call them their hijackers because in order for them to advance this narrative they have to say right just kind of this embellished point of view right that the gospels are not reliable sources that's going back to the krigma right mm-hmm. so they kind of discredit it that way and again this is this is the rudolph boltman This is Richard Simon, you know, the father of great, you know, when it comes to constructionism, when it came to uh, um, critical thinking of the scriptures, where he was dehumanizing and demythologizing it, meaning de-supernaturalizing it. Right. So so at the core of it, what progressives do when they start enhancing something like the Gospel of Thomas and not enhancing the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, obviously, John, they throw out completely Hmm. because John, they say – Clearly came way later, but even came sooner than the Gospel of Thomas, according to many of the historical um, accounts that progressive Christians will actually say they are mm-hmm. that there's credence to them. Mm-hmm. But they still discredit John because he just deified Jesus too so, much. Let me ask you a question. And, and so that what— I was going to say, but the thing is, to your point, what they do is they hijack history. They have to do that. Okay. In order to, and once they hijack history, they can undermine the credibility of what we have in the canonical gospels, and they can elevate anything that does not present Jesus as God. And that's the point. They want sources that show that Jesus was a human being just like us, Mm -hmm. and he was a sinner, but there was some type of manifestation, some aura that he had with him, that he exercised, that we need to tap into today, whether it be through social justice, what other means. Mm -hmm. And that's why they activate those type of
0: sources while they try to discredit uh, the canonical gospels. Well, I'm sorry for jumping in a moment ago. I was just – this question always comes to mind uh, when people uh, are completely dismissive of the Gospel mm-hmm. of John. And I realize that John has different language. It's, uh, it's not like the synoptics. They're called synoptics because there's so much similarity between Matthew, Mark, Luke. But John is, is different. He's a different voice on the life of Jesus. But before I mention this concern, um, it's odd that they would try to humanize Jesus by going to the Gnostic approach because Gnosticism held that Jesus didn't have a real human body. Right. I mean, that's that's uh, uh, docetism, right? That he just appeared to have and that had to do with the theology of Gnosticism. So it just it's so strange that they would do that. But here's the question I have, and I've asked this question a lot, and I've not, never gotten, a, a, I, I thought, an adequate answer. I've gotten an answer, but it seemed to me to be self-serving. Why is it that they insist that John is be late dated? He must have written much later than the others. In their mind, what is the reason why they late dated? Do you have a sense of that? Well, yeah. I mean, actually, let me if I can, let me go
1: back for a little bit. This will help okay. kind of set the stage, if I may. So in this discussion with a lot of, of Christians who have friends who are progressive or have been leaning towards that, and they, they would get a really – combobulated when they're trying to talk to them. They didn't feel like anything was sticking. And I said, okay, what we have to do is you have to evaluate it on four levels. And this is what we can do to introduce back to the gospel of John. Okay. The historical, the theological, the biblical, and the spiritual. What I mean by that is, again, if they hijack the history of the church, mm-hmm. right? And then they start introducing what they call hijackers, like Paul, mm-hmm. John. So when you get into the history now, of the gospel of John, to your point, they they segregated. Don't – there's a difference between separating and segregating. And this is this is purely, as you know, Gray, comes from John Dominic Crossan mm-hmm. and Robert Funk from the Jesus Seminar. Yeah. So they segregate, segregate John outside of the Synoptic Gospels, right, and say there's no parallelism there. And they clearly say that this was an agenda – that John and then most of them didn't even say John wrote it. This is where this starts coming in. And this is what people have to understand. Mm-hmm. Progressive Christians who argue against the canonical gospels saying that they're not historical actually take direct from the the Rudolf Boltmans of the world right. and the Bart Ermans of the world, mm-hmm. right? To discredit the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so they say that the that John in writing we don't even know if he wrote it. most of them say we don't even those names were put on there for 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 credence sake, right? But John was was put into the text, right, because it became an ecclesiastical supremacy issue, meaning right. there was no claims of Jesus saying he was God in the Matthew, Mark, Luke cases. So they had hmm. to deify him. And that's where John comes in at some point, anywhere from the late first century to the third century. Whoa. And then you clearly see it being elevated at the Council of Nicaea. So that's what they say about John. So you don't know who wrote it. It was an it was a, it was an attempt to try to deify Jesus because the synoptic gospels lacked that uh, bearing with Jesus in mind as God. Mm-hmm. So that's what they say. And so when it gets into the theological, they discredit it immediately right. because the, if you look at the Christological perspective, obviously that John has there. There it's from from chapter one you see the intentionality all the way to the very end. So they know that, so that's why they discredit it. And Mm -hmm. then when it comes to biblical explanations that feeds into salvation messages and Christianity, they don't want that to be the narrative because they know Christianity is built on the person of Jesus Christ. And if he is fully God, fully man, then that explains what you and I as biblical Christians believe. And then ultimately in the end, what is the spiritual result in everything? Mm -hmm. Well, if he was in fact God and he lived a sinless life and performed miracles, which by the way, most progressive Christians deny miracles. It's They're anti-supernaturalists. It's and, amazing and again, because
0: you... even even in the, the synoptics, you have plenty of miracles. Yeah, so... plenty of miracles.
1: Yeah, but so, and again, in, in the book, that's what I do. So when I, I show the case that they make in these six areas of Jesus, right. when it goes from his deity all the way to his second coming, and I show how they argue historically, theologically, biblically, and spiritually against biblical Christianity, mm-hmm. against Jesus's deity against his second coming but then I refute it by showing right the evidence and our arguments on as a biblical Christian to counter those things. Correct. And I have to tell people, listen. We've done the work, okay? I've read 80 plus books of progressives, listened to podcast sermons, you name it. Mm-hmm. And because I wanted to give a valid account, an accurate account of how they're like you said, because they are postmodern in their thinking, You're not going to get an absolute from any of them. Matter of fact, progressive Christians don't like to say they have quote unquote beliefs. They like to refer to values or principles, Mm -hmm. which you and I know that's a contradiction. Mm -hmm. So Roger Mosley in his book called uh, Kissing Fish, he attempted to try to define what it is that a progressive Christian believes. And again, even then it doesn't fully uh, commit to justice because most people are saying, well, I agree with this, but I disagree with that. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you, when you compile what they believe and what they deny and then you see the counter claims that we have as biblical Christians, biblically, theologically, uh, and, and spiritually and theologically Great, We have nothing to be worried about. We have right. no concern here. Right. The question is, is people going to be awakened enough to know how to respond against a progressive who denies that Jesus is God? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, I want to go back to the earlier question I asked you because what you did here is did a really great job of offering the narrative that they give to dismiss the Gospel of John and other aspects that are really critical to the person in the work of Christ. Here's what I still haven't heard from them, and that is, why do they think the narrative that they just offered is actually a sound narrative it is an accurate characterization of how things unfolded in the first and the second centuries, so that the gospel got hijacked by people like Paul and those after after them this is what i haven 't heard the thing that i 've heard is here 's why we know that John is should be late dated because it has a high Christology I mean this is what it comes down to it 's a really high Christology it is an un uh, unvarnished high Christology that you don't see quite as aggressive in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though you can still get a high Christology out of that, okay? So, and it's got a high Christology, agreed, Um, And therefore, since a high Christology takes time to develop from the man who was just the itinerant preacher, the nice guy, the revolutionary, however however you want to—the mystic, however you want to characterize it—it takes time to develop from that person to the high Christology, then the book with high Christology must have been written later. The problem is all the assumptions that they can't validate there, they're starting with their assumption to prove their case. It's circular. And, um, and then I mentioned Polycarp. We have the writings of these early church fathers that start early 2nd century that knew the disciples and reflect their teaching. Uh, what does uh, J. Warner Wallace call that? He calls it a—well, uh, you, you have this thread of evidence that goes through. Uh, he uses police terms, but uh, in any event, we have this record that shows that the narrative that you just described that they use is not a sound narrative. We have good reason to believe that there was a continuity of theology through all the church fathers who then rejected Gnosticism as a late imposition on the text and on the, on the whole idea. So anyway, so that just let it be noted that um, they can make their case by assuming their conclusion all right? Yeah. And uh, that's how that works. I mean, I haven't heard anything better than that, and I've asked this question a lot.
1: Yeah. So, well, if I may, too, Great. the other thing, too, is because, like you said, with their presupposition is they they believe, again, that the Bible was hijacked a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And that Arianism from Docetism, all that movement should have been the real Christianity. That's mm. what they claim. So that's where they're starting. That's their starting point. And that's why I lay out in the book. Right. To show their historical inquiry, how they get to that point, and then how we counter that using what we know to be historically and theologically and biblically accurate. Right. But to your point, the other thing is they they take a metaphorical then. So then when you do say, okay, well, yeah, at some point this was inserted in the Bible. We don't know who, if it was from a bishop or some follower of Jesus who took a sect of Christianity and broke it off because, again, they also hold to a copycat Christianity. Yeah. Uh, or when it got to the Ecclesiastical Recycle, side Redeemer of things. Idea. Yeah, exactly. Things are, the, you know, so like Caesar was God, then they refer to Jesus as the son of God because they got that, you know, from the, the, the common era of the paganisms and from Rome. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what people like Peter Eanes and those guys would mm-hmm. say uh, from the get-go, you know, and, and of course the classic people like, you know, Bishop Spung who passed away and, and Marcus Borg, you know, the kind of the godfathers leading into this mm-hmm. kind of a secularized academic of Jesus Christ. But, that what they, but what they – but what you have to understand is they take a metaphorical then. So whatever they do receive and say, well, no, these are scriptures. This has been handed down for the last 2,000 years, if you will. But we don't take a literal interpretation. So they're hermeneutic. Again, if they're anti-supernaturalists and they take a critical view scholastically of scripture, mm-hmm. right, Then like of textual criticism, then the way they interpret the text – and this is where it goes back into the biblical context now where you argue against them. Mm-hmm. They take a metaphorical one. So they're saying, oh, no – the resurrection of Jesus right now, for example, that's the biggest one. The resurrection was a not a literal thing that happened historically and has no theological spiritual ramifications or consequences whatsoever. It was a metaphorical teaching. Mm-hmm. So that's immediately what they do. So it, even if you can cite, this is no, this is early. It's, there's abundance. We see consistency. We see an 8180 with Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyons, who wrote against heresies, and he's proving the lack of credibility against the Gnostic Gospels. And right. through that... You know, he's showing the credibility of what we already have dated, which Mm -hmm. is known as the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Even if they give you that, they will then use a metaphorical lens to say, well, you guys are these literal, traditional dogmatic Christians. And so there's an easy explanation for when Jesus touched somebody and they were healed. Or when supposedly he rose from the dead and the disciples believed they saw him. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that we have to understand. Even if we get by the historical to show the credibility of it, then when you look within the
0: text, the internal examination of it, they take a metaphorical lens to Mm -hmm. it. So this is where I'm going to ask another question, and, and I, this keeps coming back up, and it's all part of the tactical game plan. When we get a clear understanding of what the person believes, and we've talked a lot about that, we have to ask them why they think these this approach, the metaphorical approach, or why they think um, all the other things they said is actually sound, is actually true. And when you go, you go back to the text, I mean, even thinking about the resurrection of Jesus, if the if the text just reflected in a very general way a kind of resurrection and he came to life and lives forevermore then I that would invite maybe a metaphorical characterization of it but when you have all of this detail in the text that relates to at least looks like historic interaction between the disciples and even the women who who were, Party to the resurrection first off, and gave the first testimony, um, and all the other things. How do you how do you take this massive body of information and just write it off as a metaphor? That's what it's why I think our approach and way you argue in your book, hijacking Jesus, has so much strength to it. And their approach is so weak because once you say metaphor, you got to justify taking it as metaphor. It's not a poem, for goodness' sake, and uh, and and uh, and then then it's anybody's game. However, you interpret the metaphor, you can make it any way you want.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, you're absolutely right, and that's the thing is. Remember to say when you tell a lie, and then you have to tell another lie to cover up that lie, yeah. and, and so on and so forth. And that's what progressives. That's that's exactly when you use your tactics. You, the burden is on them now to have to sustain that particular view of being an anti-supernaturalist, as well as taking a metaphorical view of the text consistently. And you start seeing the absurdity of that. If I may, I'm going to quote two people to get back to this point as to why they take that approach. Okay, um, Because, like you said, presuppositionally, this is their starting point. Mm-hmm. Two famous progressive pastors by the, da- by the name of David Felton and Jeff Proctor Murphy— this is how they dismiss the canonical gospels. And this is a book they, they wrote for progressive Christians. They say that the canonical gospels are highly subjective and written by individuals speaking to particular communities of believers. Now they go on in their book to, to suggest, right, this is their this is their counter argument against the, the the credibility of the canonical gospels and the early dating of them and having abundance of, of manuscripts, etc., is that there were different forms or positions or viewpoints of Jesus throughout the Galilean and, Naz- and, and Nazareth that that people were speaking to communities, and so they're they're all discombobulated. They didn't all match up. Mm-hmm. And again, over time, when the hijacking took place from the more. Uh, 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 ecclesiastical side of things that's when the quote the quote traditional christianity started to form itself Mm -hmm. the other person that that mentions is the former pittsburgh theological seminary professor dale allison Mm -hmm. he writes that our quote theological tradition is full of tendentious a historical readings of gospel texts readings that have served orthodox christological agendas instead of historical truth therefore matthew amended mark's Mark's gospel to advance a higher Christology. There were ideological tinkering to John's gospel that renders them both unreliable accounts of the life of Jesus.
0: Well, well, how is it that it sustained this case that they're not historical? That's what a historical means. He's saying they're not historical. Yeah. He sees variations which are easily explained in a way consistent with a high view of Scripture, and and that these were written to particular communities of believers, in one sense, that can't be argued with, because they have different tone. Matthew's written to Jews. We can tell that from the flavor of the... But that doesn't mean that, um, <laughs> that you've got this What what do you want? This mosaic of communities in ancient Palestine, like you do nowadays, where everybody's got their tight little group and they're different from other people, and you know, uh, glorifying uh, diversity. You had a a largely non-diverse community, even though some particular um, things you have largely a Jewish community there, and uh, it doesn't strike me as that is a meaningful way to undermine the historical credibility of the Gospels, especially when there's so much historical evidence that the Gospels are sound historically. And in fact, even people like Bart Ehrman are taking them as such. So I I still don't understand where they get off being so confident, as this one writer says, that this is— a historical account. Now, once you assume that, now the the floodgate is open for all different kinds of explanations of what it's supposed to mean, because it's not historical to begin with. But how does he get away with that claim?
1: Yeah, I mean, and he wrote a massive book mm. about the Christology of Jesus, and that he doesn't make the case. That's the point. Again, it's the, it's it's the same stuff. If people understand Richard Simon. And they look at Boltman and Albert Schweitzer. It's the same stuff that Mm -hmm. Dale Allison and several others that are in the liberal, Mm -hmm. progressive Mm -hmm. denominational side that they do over and over again. It's like, you know, the same arguments against miracles from David Hume and Benedict Spinoza. It's the same Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing new that Dale Allison, these are assertions that they make and they don't really and they try to cover their tracks. But to your point, we got to go back to this whole thing, because. When, when The other thing is when, you, when, when they, you have to force them on the metaphorical lens that they're taking and then referring to the canonical gospels as ahistorical. But then Bart Ehrman brings in the credibility of them being early and having a right. lot of them being transmitted into further languages that there was a community of believers that did, in fact, believe it. Mm-hmm. But what he does is he discredits them on may, two primary counts. You're seeing more progressive Christians do this. One, we don't know who actually wrote them. And two, there's not a lot of eyewitnesses. For example, he would use this. James, we know he existed, but we don't know a lot about him. And we don't even know. Maybe he was a brother of Jesus. Josephus talks about him. Jose- yeah. But he's like, but, you know, Josephus, you know, we probably, he was a liar. He's being paid off by the Romans. He's not a credible source, you know, because he was trying to save his life. Like, you know, he makes these excuses mm-hmm. and he forces on you. And the other thing he does is he says, okay, we don't know who, who wrote them. And, and finally, the way he did, he, he, he discredits the, the, the canonical gospels that is, and, and again, not in favor of anything else mm-hmm. because he, he's not, he's not religious. He has, he says he has no skin in the game, right? right. He has no belief system, which is that, that in fact is not entirely true, mm-hmm. but if he could discredit the, the authors and say, we don't know, they're, they're more or less anonymous. The other thing he does is, is he discredits, um, the, 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 the like First Corinthians 15, when he, when he mentions the 500 witnesses, he says that was just put in there for credibility's sake. But there, there's no way that you can verify that these people actually saw the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that's how he discredits it. So he says, we don't know who wrote them. And then when they throw in these eyewitnesses, we don't even know those eyewitnesses oh, were true. Okay. And nobody was able to, again, put them in a room and question them, right, to verify that they in fact – we just see Paul mentioning that in passing as though
0: it 's true, yeah. says, so you 're al- he 's alleging it to be the case okay well, this is what you have with every historical account. You have somebody alleging something to be the case, and when they allege this to be the case like uh, like caesar 's Gallic Wars and uh, you know crossing the Rubicon well, Caesar was the one who said that, he's the only one who said that, or whatever, and therefore we don't have a corroboration. That is the evidence from ancient history, is when you have uh, what, for all intents and purposes, seemed to be a credible source, you give the benefit of the doubt to the author unless you have good reason to believe otherwise. And the fact is, this particular um, enterprise called Christianity spread like wildfire for a reason. Why? There were all kinds of other so-called messiahs that made claim to be messiah that were put at end with, and that was the end of everything for that particular movement. In fact, um, we have um, in the book of Acts, we have the the Jewish leaders um, making the same comment. You know, hey, these guys came up and they just died away. No worries. Let this die away. All right. But uh, it didn't die away. There must be a reason for that. Okay, it isn't just one of those other things. So anyway, there's a lot of unanswered questions here. I'm curious, uh, just on another tack here. Why do you think, um, Jason, uh, that progressive Christianity has emerged so aggressively in the last, uh, you know, ten or fifteen years? I actually, the the, the word "emerge" is probably the proper choice because we had the emergent church in the 2000s right and uh from what i could tell this is just the emergent church co- going underground and coming up kind of in a different fashion the same people the brian mclaren's etc are still leading the charge on this what is the appeal here why is this so popular and it has hijacked so much of the church i mean that's a
1: great question and i i have to tell people I mean, ultimately, even taking a deep dive for years and talking with so many people about progressive Christianity, it's demonic. I mean, mm. the Bible clearly teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that there are certain demons that advance the doctrine of demons. Yeah. Uh, and, and through Even when we see the book of Revelation with the spirit of Jezebel, and we see false prophecy, um, you know, lingering around, you know, Ezekiel 8 and Jeremiah chapter 23, that they they take some aspects right, just like what Satan did in the garden. He took some of what God had said, but he twisted it. Now, let's go back a little further. This is this is what I did in the new theology on the block when I was talking about the the, if you will, like you said, the rise of progressive Christianity today, mm-hmm. and obviously having new figureheads, you know, from the Gent hat makers, even some very popularized female versions of of liberal doctrine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But you go back to the age of enlightenment again, this is, this isn't nothing, this isn't new. This is Satan using the time in the 1600s, right? To bring in modern sciences, to debunk, if you will, uh, the supernatural. And then out of that rises the literal, liberal Protestants. Mm -hmm. And this gave people, um, the freedom, you know, to basically move with their feelings and to privatize the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the liberation theology that became very appealing you know, looking at the oppression or, quote, quote, structural sins, right? And that's when the fight against the system and religion was viewed as, you know, the system. Part of the you system, You know, the big yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. And then the out of that, you know, so from the liberation theology and then you get black theology to then the gay gospel. So what's appealing to a lot of the young people today is, one, is I get to be who I believe I am. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, Jesus loves who I am. Mm. That's very appealing to people. There's no authority in progressive Christianity. There's no quote unquote beliefs. I mean, even Colby Martin, who sadly he and his wife recently divorced and he wrote the book called The Shift, Mm -hmm. where he talks about going from biblical Christianity to becoming a progressive Christianity. And he was a very openly gay, supporting, LGBT affirming Mm -hmm. pastor. And he even writes in his book, I mean, this is a book for people like him who've left, who deconverted from biblical Christianity and says, look, there." there is no path to progressive Christianity. So I'm not here writing, you know, telling you what you need to be doing. You need to figure that out yourself. I'm thinking, why am I reading your book then? (laughs) You know, I mean, it made no sense, but, that's the well, point. Well, it frees it's people like, up is, to
0: do what they want, kind of. Exactly. That's,
1: yeah, that's, license. And that's the heart of it. Yeah, well, that's
0: how, the heart of it. How is it, How is it? it—and and this is—pardon me, I just keep going back over these statements, and I'm trying to make sense of these. How? How is it, if there is no authority, and the Bible's not reliable in an authoritative sense, and all you can do is uh, take a, a mythological kind of uh, uh, figure of speech kind of approach— to scripture, how is it that anybody could say with any confidence that Jesus loves me the way I am? That was the comment you offered a little while ago. It's like they're playing both sides towards the middle and, and uh you know Well again, at the heart of it, again, if
1: if Jesus isn't God, then he could be whatever you want him to be. And he becomes a bobblehead Jesus that you can put on your dashboard and anything you affirm or anything you do. You look at that bobblehead Jesus, and he's just agreeing with everything you do. And that it gives him a sense of security with no authority attached to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. But if he has no authority, then why does it matter if Jesus loves me? Yeah. So, you know, uh, Jason Jimenez loves me. Whoa, that makes my life so much better. Yeah, now I have meaning and purpose in my life. He's just some guy and we're metaphorically understanding all the details of his life, then who cares whether you think he loves you? Why should you care whether you think he loves you? He's not anyone of significance. Um, anyway, so there, that's, that's another issue. Here's a, I want to talk about, and we've already been doing this a bit, um, Jason. You start with the rise of progressive Christianity, Part 1, in your book, Hijacking Jesus— and then you talk about, part two, attacks against Jesus. We've been touching on a lot of those, on his divinity and on his resurrection, on his miracles. Um, there's one area, though, that seems to get a whole lot more attention than just about anything else, and that is the attack on Jesus' atonement. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. Actually, it was funny. I was with our friend Elisa Childers, and she was saying when, when she was working with me on the book— and gave a great endorsement. Um, she said, that was my favorite chapter. Hmm. And that's been the one that she's been hung up because if you go back to her story, that's one thing that she really struggled with when she was growing in her faith and didn't really know she was just ignorant
0: mm-hmm. and she
1: was going to a progressive church. Yeah. And, and so she was getting confused because Jesus was not the way, the truth and the life. Um, he was a way or he was a manifestation of God. And so fundamentally, when you look at the doctrine of atonement, I have to say too, this was probably next to the second coming my favorite chapter, and it was probably the hardest too to write because I had to listen to the vitriol that progressives have about the atonement. For example, they refer over and over and over again to the 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 distaste that they have towards a God, if you will, that sends His Son to be stripped naked and beaten. For our sins. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking that is the, that that is, they're just disgusted by that. Cosmic Uh, child abuse. Yeah. That's what they call it. I was just going to say that that, that to them, the atonement, that's what it represents. Mm -hmm. It doesn't represent uh, the loving characteristic, if you will, of who God is. Yeah. And, and redeeming that which is lost in, in this ministry of reconciliation they they're not looking at the imputation of what it represents and what it means yeah. for us for all
0: eternity yeah by the way they look at
1: it as an atrocity
0: yeah uh, to to jump in at this point cuz i want to hear more of what you have to say about this but that reflects a low christology if, if right. it's if it's if it's a, chi- a cosmic child abuse and low christology in other words jesus isn't god <clears throat> so it is the father punishing some poor guy who's just a guy, and how is that an expression of the love of God? Because uh, it might be expression of the guy if he wants to be punished for other people's sins, but how is it an expression of the love of God? But if the guy is God, then God himself is making the sacrifice on the cross mm-hmm. and suffering and paying the penalty for our sins. So that, that itself shows a low Christology that they would say uh, cosmic child abuse, because they don't realize the child is God himself, and he's mm-hmm. the one. It's God suffering, God bleeding. In fact, uh, one of the epistles makes reference to uh, God bleeding. You know. So uh, anyway, so what else is? Uh, w- 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 they're really offended by the idea of, of uh, substitutionary atonement, uh, cosmic child abuse. I kind of cut you off in the middle of your spree there, so I know you have more. Well, to say no, about yeah, that. I
1: was going to say so people can understand. So how do they take it then? Okay, obviously they're disgusted by it, but then how do they again metaphorically? right? How do they process this whole sacrifice, if you will, of Jesus? And this is, this is an important distinction to be made. And I talk about this in that chapter on atonement on us as a biblical Christian. So they believe that Jesus's death was sacrificial, meaning he was trying to end the, 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 the division among the Romans and the Jews, etc. And so he was laying down his life like Gandhi, if you will, right. Mm-hmm. To try to, to bring in world peace so they deny that Jesus's death was a sacrifice, but it was sacrificial. We would say it's both, right? But you can't undermine the sacrifice of it. So what progressives do, they say, okay, this is how they explain it. The atonement of Jesus was a personal commitment to Jesus as, quote, becoming your savior. That he gave his life for you and he formulated these teachings and you're to live like him. Another example is that early Christians refused to accept much of Judaism and so they eventually, roughly about 80, 88, they caused more Christians to become more anti-Semitic. Right, right. Uh, Christian theology developed, they say, under the guise of the influence of Neoplatonic philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and There's the Gnosticism. More dog- yeah, exactly. Then more, more dogma gained traction, particularly the doctrines of the Incarnation, the Atonement, and the Trinity. And so by the 4th century, most progressive Christians, this is what, how they teach, by the 4th century now, Constantine had made Christianity the official religion. Of mm-hmm. the Roman Empire, and so at this point he pushed a politicized version that stripped away the timely truths of Jesus and again, Gnosticism, Arianism, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and he made these traditional symbols that erected Jesus as again this 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 savior with a sad face and blood, and you know what I mean that he was there to atone for your sins, mm-hmm. and, and and as they, this nice Jesus was just saying, can't we all just get along? Mm-hmm. And so that's when and then they merged that with his deification and said, oh now it's about god dying for us and we could become like him in eternity and then the ecclesiastical side of christianity after constantine used that to tell people if you don't accept jesus you're going to burn in hell yeah to give them power and, and so that's that's how they that's how sure. progressive christians well, spin the atonement
0: well that's the narrative again and so the that's question the is why why does a person think that that narrative is an accurate characterization of what took place by the way constantine didn't make christianity the the religious coin of the realm he just made it legal before that and just before his rule there were terrible persecutions and uh, he just made it legal it was after that some other time that that uh, that christianity became the religion of the realm so to speak yeah the but,
1: edict of milan
0: yeah so so you've got i mean here you what you mentioned earlier that Here's the sacrificial—Jesus is offering himself a sacrifice to end the division, okay? I'm I'm, I'm looking at the crucifixion, okay? Jesus is crucified by Roman soldiers, and he dies. And the reason that he does this is to somehow, what, prevail against the Romans and unite the Romans and the Jews? How does that actually work out? I I don't—that doesn't make any sense to me in terms of what actually took place. Even what they say took place. If Jesus did die on a Roman cross as a human being, and he died as a, uh, say, maybe a political activist of some sort, you know, king of the Jews, and that was his—sedition was his crime. How is that to be understood <laughs> as a way of making a sacrifice to bring communion and uniting to disparate groups like the Jews and the Romans? There was nothing that looked anything like that afterwards. And—, it, and, and- and to your point, Greg, they, what, what, what progressive has
1: to do again with they hijack history, but they have to completely undermine the Passover going back to Exodus 15 and Jesus being the Passover lamb and John the Baptist said in John 129, behold, the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Right, right. Fast forward to the early church in Acts chapter two, 23 through 24, when Peter stood up there and he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified And killed by the hands of the lawless men. But God raised him up, loosened the pangs Mm -hmm. of death. Right. So, and then we can go on and on through this whole thing. But we have, what I do in the book is I show Christians the fulfillment of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection from the Jewish scriptures. There's no denying it. I mean, we're going way back to the garden Clearly with the Passover lamb Mm -hmm. in Exodus 15 that the Jews still celebrate to this day. I also chart and show the Jewish feast, how Christ himself fulfilled that. And one of them being, being the atonement for our sins. Mm -hmm. So it is all over. We do not have to feel afraid or burdened by a progressive countering and saying, oh, that's such an atrocious theology you know, Constantine started to insert it later on. And, Mm -hmm. and the, the the early Christians never believed that that is absolute and total nonsense. There's, there's so much evidence that I lay in the book, particularly in this chapter about the atonement
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: it's foundational. Yeah. Now, one last thing too, Diana Butler Bass, who wrote freeing Jesus, you know, who's a theologian and she's a progressive and she's a mentor to people like Jint Hatmaker and others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, was friends with Rachel Held Evans the way that she interprets, for example, like the Passover is just, again, the whole sense of that you guys take a literal thing when it was just spiritual. It's symbolic. It's just, it's about that we have to be sacrificial in our lives, that we have to be willing to lay down our lives and our self-interest for the betterment of society. Yeah. And then when you look at John 14, she says the way the truth in life has all sorts of different meanings and different symbolism um, in religion. Mm-hmm. we take a hard-nosed approach of it and a dogmatic one which is too literal and so that's how they just debunk the whole thing and 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 pa- and, well, and ca- you know cast it aside and think that the, the death and burial of jesus has really no spiritual eternal significance mm-hmm. whatsoever and then again the last thing we have to understand too is progressive christians do not believe in an afterlife so they're not looking forward they're not looking forward for the return of Jesus Christ, which we as biblical Christians believe that not mm-hmm. only will Christ return, but He will restore, and make all things new, according to Acts three twenty one, which means our 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 lowly bodies,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we will receive our resurrected bodies. Mm-hmm. So the atonement gives us that hope, not just forgiveness, but it leads to the finality and the consummation of all things. Mm-hmm. So that's what we believe as biblical Christians. Progressive Christians make no assertions of the things whatsoever.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm looking at Isaiah 53 right now regarding the atonement, and the, the whole passage here, it seems to me, cannot be mistaken in terms of a substitutionary atonement, but I'm just going to read a couple verses here, verse 5 and 6. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, this isn't New Testament. This is this is Isaiah. And we know it predates the time of Christ because it was in, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and so, um, I'm looking now at a passage in Peter, and to me, it's just... Uh, when this when I read this a few months ago, it just jumped right out. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, For he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, for by his stripes we are healed. There I don't know how you can miss this. And uh, notice the connection between the summary Peter offers. And you can be all dismissal if you want, of Peter, and that's 1 Peter, by the way. It's not contested like 2 Peter is in terms of authorship. You can be dismissive, but now he's citing the Old Testament, which makes the same point that Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, was a sacrificial lamb on our behalf. And by the way, you can keep reading the rest of Isaiah 53 because the language continues throughout. Right across the page, by the way, from the one I read in 1 Peter 2.24, for he himself Bore our sins in His body on the cross, or by His stripes we are healed. Right across the page, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring you to God. Uh, it, it's it's like if you if you take the English language reasonably seriously. I don't know how you can miss this, okay? One other question here. We're getting a little short in time, and I have some more questions, but this is one that this has come up in my mind. All through this discussion, this is a group of people that are dismissive of the reliability of the New Testament documents to tell us anything true about God, or about Jesus, or about theology. Yet, time and time again, they are citing New Testament passages to make their case for their view. So which is it? Is, are these documents reliable or not? Or are, are they reliable enough that you can cherry-pick your verses and find a metaphoric definition and spin a narrative that you think is reasonable? Um, and if it's reasonable to do that with it, why can't we read it more directly as it seems the writers intended and get more classical Christian theology out of it which is which is it going to be
1: yeah well so if I may too what's important too is if if people have ever talked to a Muslim um and a lot of people haven't unfortunately but I encourage people to find some Muslims and befriend them because a lot of the ones I've engaged with around the country are are some nice people and they like to have these conversations and of course they have a, a misunderstanding of so much when it comes to Jesus mm-hmm. the gospels etc in Christianity I think we're tritheistic and because we believe in three gods, supposedly, which is false. And and so a lot of people can get intimidated. But the reality is there's a lot of level ground that we can have with Muslims from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And I bring this up, Greg, because it's important to point out that progressives, it's the same. Most of them that say they're a Christian, they believe Jesus is their Savior, but deny, again, like we talked about, they deny his virgin birth. They deny that he's a son of God. They deny that he he died on the cross for sins and rose again, that he's coming Miracles. again, etc. But what, what they do is, like you said, they want to embrace a form of Jesus and a form of Christianity. They do want to turn to the scriptures and say, we don't take the Bible literally, but we take the Bible seriously. They mm-hmm. say that all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I use it to my advantage then. And just like I do with a Muslim, when I say, hey, I believe in the angels, which is the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so do Muslims. But the Muslims have never read it. So this is a great opportunity for me to say, look, I take um, the, 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 the approach that I believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote about Jesus in the first century. Mm-hmm. And this is what they said about him. And I affirm his divinity all the way to his second coming. And when I've talked to progressive Christians, I interviewed a lot of them actually, they didn't want to be in the book. And so they knew that I was just, we were just doing this behind the scenes, mm-hmm. but I had com some of them were progressive pastors, leading churches. Some of them have written books and they're very nice uh, we we got in some heated debates, but every, we were both respectful on both sides. So I, I thank them for that. And they're very helpful. But when it came down to this, when it, you're right, it's like you guys you can't have it both ways. You can't say that I do affirm that Jesus had 12 disciples and they're even named. You can't you can't hold some things to be historically true to lend some form of credibility so you can have some spiritual emphasis that you can use in your belief system as a progressive Christian. Mm -hmm. And then yet, and this is what the Jesus seminar does, and then yet deny, right? Mm. Everything else. Right. But that that's a cherry picking type of a person, right? They they, they're only taking notice to things that have little significance overall because Mm -hmm. at the heart of it, is remember progressive Christians are either a deist or they're a pan in theist. Mm-hmm. So God either way is not transcendent and imminent into creation, the way that we as biblical Christians teach. Right. So that is so important. This is why I talk about process theism in the book as well, right. Greg, because that is what we actually, before we look at the biblical hermeneutic, before we look at historical grammatical inter- interpretation of scripture, understand where most progressive Christians are coming from with their view of God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and and the the heart of it, whether you're talking to a progressive pastor who went to seminary, right, who used to embrace a literal interpretation of scripture, and now denies it, and he's an anti supernaturalist, they will tell you that God is not the the one that we believe in the Bible, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They believe that he is a some powerful being out there, but he's not engaged in our day-to-day affairs. Yeah,
0: so that's where I'm going to ask, where do you get this idea that you're importing? It's the same thing like Marcus Borg and their crowd, the Jesus Seminar crowd. They're anti-supernaturalists. Okay, where do you get the idea that there is no such thing as a supernatural thing so that you could read the text and? remove all of these supernatural characterizations because they must be false. You know, I asked you earlier about what do you think is behind this? What's the attraction? You mentioned the demonic realm, and I think that's a, a very sound answer. I think there's something else. though. So that's from the spiritual side. I think from the human side, and, and you know, fallen human beings cooperate with the devil because they don't love truth, you know, and so they can be deceived easily. Uh, When I think about all these views that progressive Christians advance, or the views that they reject, they reject all the views of Scripture that the world itself doesn't like, and they advance all the views that are consistent with the world. So even though there's this veneer of Christianity, there is nothing about their views that's going to put them at odds with anyone in leftist culture. They fit right in and can give the nod to everything that leftists do because of what they've done to Jesus in hijacking him so. And, uh, and I, I, in my sense, that's a tremendous appeal. You know, they've given a green light. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. I guess maybe progressives could say, well, all men don't speak well of us. The Christians, the classical Christian, they don't speak well of us. But I don't think that's the kind of thing that Jesus had in mind. Yeah, I told. I, I think that's that's
1: a that's a good observation you made, Greg. Because when you actually see the Jesus that has been formulated, we we uh, you know, top of the interview, we're talking about what are the false images of Jesus. Well, let's look at the the the, the majority view now by millennials, Gen Zers, and people who have been deconstructing their faith mm-hmm. and eventually deconverting from the Christian historic faith. Jesus is a mystical person. who had some connection to some type of supernatural force, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, uh, deistically or panentheistically, or he was a woke teacher where he yeah. was all inclusive and he embraced everyone. And that's what he was about. He was, he was fighting for the oppressed. He the was trying to reform just, Judaism. Yeah.
0: Social justice, whole, Jesus, and, right.
1: So social justice in this context, social justice is the gospel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This is due unto others as you would have them do unto you. So it's again, good behavior, moralism, Mm -hmm. Right. Accepting all walks of life. All religions are flowing to this supernatural being, whatever that may be, the self-consciousness that people like Richard Rohr and then we'll talk about. Right. And that's an important distinction to make, too, is that when you get into deeper realms of progressive Christianity, there are some that are known as mystical progressive
0: Christians. Right. Right.
1: Right. That so not all progressive Christians are mystical. But then you and then you could be in a a progressive church where they are LGBT affirming and they're all woke. Yeah. Right, but they're not mystical, if you will.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And then
1: you can get into the insurrectionist category of Jesus.
0: Right. Again,
1: he he failed. He was he he failed, and the disciples felt so bad; they missed their rabbi. And they were, they were lost for words, and, and they, were, they feared their life, and they, wanted, they didn't want to go back with their tail between their legs. And well, that's when they said, let's, let's start Christianity. Yeah,
0: those are all the reinvented images of Jesus, and we could be talking for hours on this. My recommendation, get Jason's book, Hijacking Jesus, How Progressive Christians Are, Remaking Him, and Taking Over His Church. Been great chatting as usual, Jason. I look forward to the next time we can get together. God bless you, Greg. Thank you, buddy. All right, friends, that's it for this hour. Greg Kochel here for Stand to Reason. Give him heaven, all right? Bye-bye now.